0: Kickstart is ready to leave because this sermon is ready to PG. In a sense, I'm serious about that because we're beginning a series today, a short series taken from the book of Judges. And I don't know whether you've read the book of Judges recently or ever, but if you have, you realize it's a brutal and uh, frank book. Uh, I think there's an irony in starting this series today on the Book of Judges because I just finished two weeks of jury duty. And uh, what I found in that service is that juries are actually the judges of the evidence in a trial. Uh, the trial judge, besides presiding over uh, the conduct of the trial itself, and if the defendant is found guilty, determining what kind of sentence has prescribed by law. It's really the jurors who are the judges of the evidence presented in that trial. Uh, and so uh, as we move into the series, I just feel like I've gotten done being a judge. Uh, and it was a murder case. Uh, and it was brutal. And uh, looking at some of the evidence during it. Uh, My daughter thinks that that was the case that I should have been uh, on because of my obsession with things of uh, homicide nature. Uh, But that's only because she grew up in my household that I thought homicide things. But uh... (laughs) When we talk about the book of Judges, that term judge is not what we generally think of when we use the word judge. The term judge, as used in the Old Testament book of Judges, comes from the Hebrew word shofet, which is translated into English as judge, but in Hebrew is closer in meaning to ruler, or a kind of military leader, or deliverer from potential or actual defeat. And the book of Judges encompasses about 400 years of the history of the nation of Israel, from the time of Joshua's death. Until finally a king is placed on the throne over Israel uh, in the form of Saul. Uh, So the question you might ask, um, as a Christ follower here in the 21st century, why is it that I would want to study the book of Judges? Well, I would answer that by saying, because history is important. Because history has a tendency to be both repetitive and connective. When I talk about repetitive, let me give you an example. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Edward Gibbon. Edward Gibbon, there's a picture of him there, or a, painting, a picture of a painting. Uh, Edward Gibbon was a philosopher from Great Britain. He was a, uh, a uh, historian and also a member of parliament, but this was back during the 1700s. And he wrote a six-volume history entitled, A History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And he goes from the Emperor Trajan about AD 96 and carries it on through until the final demise (coughs) of the greatest empire that the world had ever seen. And uh, after he had written this six volumes, incidentally I have all six volumes loaded on my iPad uh, because the copyright has expired and I can get it for free. Uh, But uh, after he had written it, he compiled a list of what he considered to be the five major reasons for the collapse and fall of the Roman Empire. And I think it's interesting because, as I say, history is repetitive. And Tell me, as you are living through history right now, whether you see any of these things or any of these characteristics, maybe, in the culture in which we live. He determined, he, he, uh number one reason, he says, was the undermining of the dignity and sanctity of the home, which is the basis of human society. I think that's significant. Secondly, he said, higher and higher taxes. The spending of public money for free bread and circuses for the populace. Thirdly, he said, the mad craze for pleasure. Sports becoming every year more exciting, more brutal, and more immoral. Now, they didn't have dwarf tossing back in the days of Edward Gibbon, but... Number four, the building of great armaments when the great enemy was within, the decay of individual responsibility. And the fifth reason he cited was the decay of religion, fading into a mere form, losing touch with life, losing power to guide the people. Now it might be worth it to bear in mind that Edward Gibbon was not especially a fan of Christianity. As a matter of fact, In his view, Christianity tended to weaken the Roman Empire because, after all, we are following a Messiah who told us to love the enemy and do good to those who do bad toward us. And consequently, he thought that the influence of Christianity may have weakened the empire and accelerated its collapse. But be that as it may, these five points of the decline seem to indicate that history is repetitive, that it goes in cycles, and that all great cultures will eventually collapse. There has never yet been a nation that is, or a kingdom that has lasted into infinity. There's only one kingdom that we read about, for which there's a promise that it is an eternal kingdom. And that's why we're here this morning. And as Christ followers, we believe in that one kingdom that has no end. Now, it's also connective. The Bible is a history of God's interactions with mankind right from the very beginning. And the very first book is entitled Genesis, the beginning. And it uh, goes to the anticipation of the kingdom for which there is no end. And that ends in the book of Revelation. And everything written in between... 1,400 years it took to compile these 66 books by a number of different authors, not interrelated people who were collaborating to make sure they got all of their facts and figures together, but rather these are God revealing His history, beginning with Adam and going down into the revelation of the Messiah, and then what should follow. And so what took place in this book is part of our history as God people. Not only His chosen people, the Jews, but also those of us who are Gentiles who have been engrafted into the kingdom of God. And so it's important for us to know our history as a people. And the book of Judges is a part of that history. Now, don't you want to know your history as a cross follower? Uh, How many of you have, uh, you don't have to show your hand because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but if you've gone to Ancestry.com and tried to uh, find out where did I come from, I've always been interested in that. When I... uh, was growing up, I used to think that the name Barrington had some kind of great nobility attached to it. That we were somehow in the Kingdom of Great Britain nobility that uh, would have been prized. Now this coat of arms really isn't the Barrington. What I found out, my dad had a cousin in Texas who did uh, the family lineage and did all the ancestry work. This is before the internet came into vogue. And what she found out was that our, we were a bunch of Irish dirt farmers who came here whose last name really was Bangton. Uh, it just got misspelled somewhere, but I know I cannot live in any community that has a gate on it with my last name because I can't afford it. Uh, but I think it's interesting that last week Adam uh, brought up a passage in Acts 17 that I think speaks to this need for this connectedness to those people back in the book of Judges. In Acts 17, verse 26, Paul says, "For one, "...from one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history, and the boundaries of their lands." We all look different. Unless you have an identical twin, there's nobody quite like you. We are all unique We all may have different hues of skin, different heights, different weights. We won't get into the details on the weights, but we are all different, and yet we are connected. We are all interrelated because we all came from that one person, and God created it. And so we want to learn this history. Your history extends much further than the time that the doctor held you up by your heels and smacked your backside, and you took your first breath. So let's set the context in the book of Judges. Judges is a as I said a brutally frank account of Israel's cycle of failure, repentance, and deliverance. Their history even in that 400-year confined period is repetitive. It is cyclical. Failure, repentance, and deliverance. In the first chapter of Judges, we have Joshua who dies at the age of 110. He was you remember the successor to Moses after Moses passed away at the age of 120. Uh, But Joshua takes over and leads the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. Uh, And uh, eventually Joshua's time uh, passes and he passes from the scene. But the land of Canaan is invaded and conquered by Israel. And Israel by God's divine uh, design is an invading people. As, As we read in Acts 17 he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And so These are 12 tribes descended from Abraham. You might might think of them, to make an analogy, you might think of them as 12 states. That's not a good analogy. But here's a map of how the land of Canaan was conquered and inhabited by each of these 12 tribes. Actually, the 12 sons of Abraham in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that from this one man who didn't have a kid until he was almost 100 years old comes a mighty nation. Uh, and, uh, and so they divided up the land of Canaan by tribes. And so uh, they move into the land of Canaan and they start to uh, 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 conquer. And this again is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And the reason again that this is important and is because they are the vehicle through which the Messiah was to come. And the Messiah is important to every one of us as a Christ follower because of what he did on that cross. And today we have hope because of what the Messiah did. And so the book of Judges is important to us. And one of the first things that happens is they go in and they conquer a kingdom called Bezek. And they had a king by the name of Adonibizek. And Adonibizek had been a conqueror and and God determined it's time to take him out of the way. And so they went in and conquered Adonibizek. And when they captured the king, what they did is they cut off his thumbs and his large toes. I don't run too well without my large toes, and if I don't have opposable thumbs, I can't text message anybody. Uh, and so Adoni Bezek uh, had his thumbs and toes t- cut off, and uh, it's ironic that the scripture tells us that he realized that what was happening to him was actually repayment for what he had done before to other kings. He says, 70 other kings, I have cut off their large toes and thumbs, and so now it's happened to me. But one of the things that's important to note in chapter 1 is that not, not all of the native peoples, and we would call them indigent people, ind- indigenous people, not indigent, indigenous, not all of them were able to be removed from the land. And so that's going to play into the narrative as we go through uh, Judges. In chapter 2, the seeds of problems for Israel for the next several hundred years are revealed by an angel sent by God uh, at a place called Boikim. In chapter 2, verse 1, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares for you. Now, as an older generation dies off, their influence for doing right disappears. And the next generation leaves God. I think that's one of the most important reasons why we celebrate what we just did a moment ago, to commemorate the events on this cross, so that every succeeding generation remembers what it is that makes them righteous, not their good works, but the t- sacrifice that was made. So we continue in chapter, one, or chapter 2, verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook Him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In His anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as He had sworn to them. They were in great distress. And so, the generation of Israelites who had come out of Egypt and who remembered all the battles they had fought to take over the land of Canaan, those who had heard Moses and who had heard and followed Joshua, they die off. How many of you know what an honor flight is? Uh, an honor flight is, is provided by a nonprofit to World War II veterans, and there are not many left anymore. Who uh, are flown at no expense to them by this nonprofit to go to Washington, D.C. and to visit the World War II memorial there. And those flights go out fairly frequently. I don't know whether you saw on the news a couple of weeks ago, there was a 95 year old World War II veteran who went on an honor flight. He took his son with him, his son was a cardiologist. Uh, and he went and he visited that, and on the flight home on the plane, he died. I mean, it was sad in one respect, but his son talked about this was the highlight of his life, to be able to do that. Now, my father-in-law served in the Navy during World War II, and I remember a few years ago he was offered one of these honor flights, and he turned it down because all of his service was stateside. He thought one of the other veterans should get that opportunity. Uh, I have a friend also whose mother served during World War II, and she went uh, a couple of years ago on an honor flight, And she was able to be the one that laid the wreath at the Tomb of the Unknowns. Uh, And that that was the highlight of her life. She passed away. But they're leaving us. We call that World War II generation what? The greatest generation. And in many respects it was. They came home from the war, those who survived, and they got jobs. They had families. They raised those families They provided for them. They lived their lives. But as that generation is dying off, a succeeding generation has come along. That's my generation. The baby boomers. Baby boomers, you're in your 70s now. Think about that for a second. You're going back to diapers, but you're not a baby anymore. (laughs) But what happens when a generation comes after a great generation? Why they tend to forget the sacrifices that have been made. And that's what happened in Israel. But God sends deliverers because like flies drawn to dung, the Israelites kept returning to their corrupt ways. So we continue in verse 16 of chapter 2. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices in stubborn ways. Therefore, The Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out from before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Now, it talks about them worshiping other gods because of the influence that was left by these indigenous peoples who they did not drive out as God commanded. And they talk about the Baal and the Ashtoreth. Uh, And uh, these were gods and goddess uh, respectively of fertility. And a little later, Israel would worship another false god called Molech. Uh, And uh, their worship focus was on The reproductive process, this is uh, Ashtoreth, or a representation of one, that's Baal, and then you've got uh, Molech. And when Israel worshiped Molech, they actually took their children and burned them in fire as a sacrifice to this false god. Can you conceive such a thing? People actually killing their own children? And so this is the problem. God provides on-the-job training in chapter 3, on-the-job training in warfare to the Israelites who had not fought in taking the land of Canaan. Verse 1, chapter 3. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare. Something think about that statement for a moment. God did this to teach warfare. To the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience, the five rulers of the Philistines were left, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount baal Hermon to Lebo-Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which He had given their ancestors through Moses. And the Israelites lived among the Canaanites, The Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites. All the ites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. You see what's happened here is these cultures are being intermixed. And as a result of that, there is a dilution of devotion toward God among the Israelites. And so the consequences are found beginning in verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of cushan Rishethaim, king of Aram, Neharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years." And so they leave God. God lets them stew in the consequences of their uh, lack of devotion for eight whole years. Two terms. You, Draw your own conclusions from that. (laughs) But then he raises up a deliverer by the name of Othniel. Continuing in verse 9. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him, so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan rishathaim king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him, so the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel son of Kenaz died." So they get 40 years of peace and then old habits return. Now note the influence of a righteous leader, a righteous person. But once gone, wickedness returns. I think that's why it's important that we train up our children in the way that they should go so that when they're old it won't depart from them. We need to train them up so that when we're gone They are still walking in the ways that the Lord set before them. It's so important that you parents take that responsibility seriously. That's not a condemnation. We all fall short in that goal. But if we leave our children to their own devices, they're going to find ways to move away. Now we come to the main part of our lesson for today. I still got an hour and a half, so don't worry. We're going to talk about Ehud. Now for you millennials, Ehud was his name. It wasn't Electronic-Hud, Ehud. It was Ehud, which is a great name. So if you want to name a child after a Bible, name them Ehud. We named our children after biblical names. We've got Sarah Ruth over here. And we had Samuel Jacob, although Samuel, the Samuel part, was for a cat named Sam that we had who got run over by a tractor. So my <laughs> son was named for a dead cat, but uh, it was a biblical name. Okay, in verse 12, Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon had attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, which later is known as Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Aglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Now, it's interesting, as we talk about the Moabites and the Ammonites, uh, Moab was the name of one of the sons that was conceived by the daughter of Lot in an incestuous uh, relationship. You remember the story how that when Lot and his family were fleeing the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, God told them not to look back, but Lot's wife did what? She looked back and she turned became a pillar of salt. And so when they had escaped, the daughters of uh, two of them, of uh, Lot, thought to themselves, we're not going to be able to bear children because we've lost everything. And so they made a plan to get their father drunk and then to conceive by him, and they did. And the oldest of the conception, of children of the conception was named Moab. The second child that was born out of that incident was named Ammon. And so the Moabites and the Ammonites are the descendants of those two uh, sons of Lot. And, and if you look at that map of Israel, you'll find that in the southeast section of the land of Canaan are the regions inhabited by the Ammonites and the Moabites. And so King Aglon was the king of Moab, and he suppressed the Israelites for 18 years. Now again, Ruth was also a Moabite. Remember Ruth in the book of Ruth? Uh, But Israel will stew in subjection, not for 8 years this time, but for 18. Pick up again with verse 15. Again the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gira, the Benjamite. Now, it's going to become obvious why left-handedness is important here. How many of you are left-handed? You can, you can show your hands there. There's a few of you. I'm left-handed. That's why I could never use a fountain pen to write with, because you do that little thing where your hand moves across the ink and smears everything. Uh, now, I, when I say I'm left-handed, there's only 10% of us who are left-handed. We're in the right brain. But uh, we're left-handed. But I eat and write left-handed. I do everything else right-handed because you've got to use scissors eventually. Uh, but Ehud was left-handed. And the irony in it is that the very name Benjamin, he was a Benjamite, the very name Benjamin means son of my right hand. So we've got a left-handed son of my right hand who is the hero of this story. The Israelites sent uh, him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. You know, the Israelites are paying their dues to Eglon. He's the king. So we need Ehud to carry this tribute. Now, Ehud made a double-edged sword about a cubit long. That's about 18 inches, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He's left-handed. He straps it to his right thigh. An 18-inch double-edged sword. I, took, I mentioned this jury duty, the manner of which this murder was committed was by stabbing with a butcher knife it wasn't near 18 inches in length Uh, and it's hard to comprehend but 18 inch double edged sword is strapped to Ehud's right thigh Uh, and uh, now things are about to get more graphic because I said Judges is a brutal book The, the Bible doesn't hide stuff from us now, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. How fat was he? I don't have a number to give you, the number of pounds. How many of you watch My 600 pounds Life? No, you don't want to admit to that. <laughs> My wife watches it. I have to leave the room. Uh, and I don't know whether Eglon would have been a uh, candidate for that show or not, but we're going to find out how fat he was in a second. Uh, and he presented the tribute and he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Aglon and said, Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. Okay, now this is intriguing. So the king said to his atten- attendants, Leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Okay, you're getting ready to go to lunch, right? (laughs) Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed over. That's how fat he was. And then Ehud went out to the porch, he shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and locked them. And after he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. And they said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. And they waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. And there they saw the Lord fallen to the floor, dead. Now, Ehud had a message to deliver from God, and he delivered as only a southpaw can. Now, one of the perplexities of the modern Western believer is how to reconcile God's use of such violence against the enemies of his people. Well, God is the creator. And God's eternal. And God is omniscient. And so I'm going to let God sort that all out. But he used this violent incident to deliver his people. And to crush an enemy. Why did God want a succeeding generation of Israelites to learn how to conduct warfare? The violence was going to be ramped up. Uh, momentarily because we move to verse 26 it says while they waited Ehud got away he passed the stone images and escaped to Syria. and when he arrived there he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them follow me he ordered for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands so they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab they allowed no one to cross over that time they struck down about 10 Thousand Moabites, all vigorous and strong, not one escaped. That day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Now, I, as we read through the book of Judges, and I think if you've read through the book of Judges before, we've always had this idea that the people who are the heroes and the heroines in the book of Judges are people who went to the gym every day, worked out for eight hours, and were all muscle bound and in great shape. But I don't think that at all. I think the strength came from the one who sent them to deliver them. The strength came from God. When we get to the story of Samson, I'll prove that a little further. But what are the applications of the story of Ehud? Why, does this, why is this story important for us, or any of these judges' stories? Because I believe that earthly cultures corrupt. A generation grew up that did not remember the mercies that God has shown Israel in freeing them from the bondage of Egypt. Even when they were escaping, every so often they would uh, get rankled and and murmur against Moses and say, you know, it would be better if we went back and ate from the flesh pouches of Egypt than to eat this stuff that comes out on the ground every morning. Uh, We want flesh. People forget the blessings that God has given to them. And Israel began worshiping fertility isles, Baal and Ashtoreth. Again, remember what they did when Moses was up on the mount receiving the Ten Commandments. He hadn't even made it down 40 days when they were already fashioning the calves out of the gold and saying, here's your God who led you out of Egypt. How would you as God, I mean that's a ridiculous proposition to even speculate how we would react as God, but God is looking down and seeing already disaffection from the people. But these people are worshiping Baal and Asheroth, and the vulgarity and debauchery that attended the worship of these imagined gods and goddesses can't be described in a family setting. But it eventually degenerated into religious prostitution by the so-called priestesses. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because history is repetitive. Hundreds of years later, in the first century A.D., when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he pointed out that the very same debaucheries and wickedness that had followed the people of Israel when they left God could be found in the great empire of Rome. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, the wrath beginning with verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For some, uh, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse." When I was in school, in the eighth grade, I had a science teacher who wanted to teach us a biology lesson about the eyeball, and so uh, I volunteered to go to a local slaughterhouse and got two cow eyes, which I put in the refrigerator under cellophane without telling my mother first, (laughs) so she got a surprise when she opened the door. But she was dissecting the eye and pointing out the various parts of the eye to us, and I I don't think she could do this today, but I remember her saying, how can anyone look at something like this and say, there's no God? We see the starry host, we see all of the systems, even in our own planet, that work together perfectly, the obvious deduction must be there is a creator. And so Paul says that these things are clearly seen, being understood from what is made so And furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Does any of this ring familiar to what we see happening in today's culture? It seems like morality, and I can only judge for the last five or six decades that I've been around, but it seems like everything that is moral or immoral has been turned upside down. And Paul knew this when he was writing to the Romans. And some of them had been in those very conditions. And then he was also writing to the Jews in the second chapter. And when he talks to the Jews, you "You Jews are so self-righteous, but you're no better. You create laws that you ought to be keeping, and you try to bind it on others, but you don't keep them. And he brings that on down to the sixth chapter of Romans, where he talks about the fact that, yeah, we're all in the same condition. Every single one of us in here is an imperfection. Every single one of us in this room has messed up, and we mess up on a daily basis. But the fact of the matter is, God has sent us a deliverer. He sent us a deliverer that went to the cross. So that our imperfections could be made perfect through the sacrifice of His blood. And if we forget that, if we don't dwell on that, if we don't teach it to our children and pass it from generation to generation, what happens is history repeats itself. And the cycle of wickedness and evil continues. Jesus would say in John chapter 15 verse 19, in talking about his disciples, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And then in the 17th chapter, in verse 15, he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, he's speaking to God on behalf of his disciples, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Israel forgot who they were called to be. They allowed the cultural influences of the heathen nations to infect their thinking and to uh, separate them from their God. Are we remembering the rule of God over the opinions and rule of our culture? Separation from God's will has painful consequences. That's our second takeaway from this. Israel suffered when God allowed their sin to subject them to the oppressors of this world. And when we decide to follow the world rather than God, we will suffer. We'll have broken lives, we'll have broken marriages, we'll have broken families. We'll be broken people. But when Israel repented and they called out for a deliverer, God was faithful to send that deliverer. And when we repent, God is faithful to show us mercy and to send us a Deliverer. Would you bow with me? Our God, our Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Father, for the Deliverer that you sent to us in the form of Jesus, the Messiah. We thank you, Father, for the fact that He loved us and you loved us so much that He willingly laid down His life so that we wouldn't be punished. And so, Father, we accept that with great gratitude At the same time, we pray that you will forgive us when we stumble daily and forget who you have called us to be. Help us to be more resolved, Father, to be your follower, to let you be our king. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.